This is the part of our service where we turn our attention to God's Word. We believe that the Scriptures are God's Word to us, and so we read them and preach from them so that we might live our lives by them. I'll read the Scriptures for us, and then this week we have one more uh, guest preacher with us, so I'll take a moment now to introduce him, and then I'll read the Scriptures for us. Ian McConnell is coming to us from Grace Bible Church on the other side of the boulevard. If there is a human being that is louder and more charismatic than Dennis, we found him, so... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We strategically had him sit there so that the rest of you wouldn't get scared. Um, Ian is coming from Grace Bible Church. They're a part of the Sovereign Grace Network, which is a church planting network like the Acts 29 church planting network that we're a part of. And those two networks enjoy a great friendship, and we enjoy a great friendship. Ian's been a great friend and an encouragement to me. Their church is on the other side of the boulevard doing great work for God. And again, hopefully one of the things that I'm begging God for us to see in these weeks uh, is that God is doing something great in the city of Philadelphia. We are not building our own empire, our own kingdom, our own brand. We're just being swept up into a bigger work that God has been doing and is a part of. And it's a joy for us to be a part of that and to learn from these brothers who are uh, a bit further ahead and wiser. And and Ian and his family are a godly family family, and so I'm, I'm joyful for us to sit humbly and hear from them. So over these few weeks, if you've been with us, we've called this series, If I Could Tell You One Thing, and ask these men to come and say, if there was one thing you felt like Seven Mile Road needed to hear, what would that be? And let our hearts have a posture of saying, okay, Lord, as we begin 2012, we humble ourselves and ask that you would speak to us through these men, okay? So let me read for us. The scripture is from Matthew chapter 22. Verses 34 to 40, and then Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. We'll start at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. Amen. Church, grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I come to you with greetings from the church on the other side of the boulevard. And we are are delighted. We are delighted to be in not only the same city, serving the same Savior with you, but we are delighted to be in the same part of the city Um, with you. We have a heart for Northeast Philadelphia that mirrors your heart for Northeast Philadelphia and which we both hope mirrors the heart of our great God for Northeast Philadelphia. So it is a a delight to be here with you. And I want to let you know that we pray for Seven Mile Church. We pray for you publicly, 
regularly in our Sunday gatherings at Grace Bible Church. And the reason why we do that is because we believe that we are not in this alone. We believe we are in this together. And as your, as your pastor, Ajay, has made so clear in his communication to you as the people of God, this is not about Seven Mile Church. This is not about Grace Bible Church. This is not about our little enclave of gospel center, whatever, whatever kinds of churches. This is about Jesus Christ and the expansion of his kingdom and the making great of the name of God. And so we're in this together. And we rejoice in that. And so that's why we pray for you. If we had more money, we'd give it to you. Okay? We, we want to see what's happening here absolutely flourish and blossom. We want, to, want God to do here what we've seen God doing over the last six years at Grace Across the Boulevard. And so if I had more time, I'd tell you that story. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll squeeze a little bit of that in a little bit later as I share some prayer requests. But God's been merciful to us as I assume and believe God has been merciful to you through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I could tell you one thing, what an open topic. If I could tell you one thing, I'd tell you to kick the guy out with a Giants jersey, okay? <laughs> so I have a hard time actually being here. This is very distracting. <laughs> I am lifelong Northeast Philadelphia, born and raised, converted disciple, with the exception of college and seminary. I bleed green, buddy. And so... Uh, but since I want Ajay to have the privilege of sitting next to his wife during preaching, um, I, I will remain here for the rest of this time. <laughs> this might seem a little odd, but I want to do this before we get into the text and, and we begin this message. Is that I want to, not that you don't believe this, but I, I want to say this. I want to commend to you the gospel ministry of Ajay Thomas. I want to commend to you um, the grace of God that's upon this man's life to lead the mission of God I'm with you here together. And why do I say that? In, in the, over the last two years, every interaction I've had with this man, and they've been personal interactions, not just public interactions. And my personal interactions with this man, here's a man who loves God, loves people, and loves the church. This man, his love for Jesus is contagious. I love to hear him pray. I love to listen to scripture go from his heart to his tongue up to God in prayer through the Lord Jesus Christ. You are an encouragement to me, a means of grace to me. And I, I want to say, say before these people that you love dearly um, that I am thankful for the grace of God in your life. What a, what a display of gospel humility that he would invite other pastors to come in and say what's up. Um, that's, that's, that's humble leadership. I listened to, Ajay is an exceptional preacher. I said this to my wife. I said this to others. I would, I, I, if I was not a pastor, I want to sit under his preaching. I was listening to some of his preaching through Exodus. I listened to his vision message that he preached at the beginning of this month. This man is a clear, cross-centered articulator of the scriptures. And so I don't say this to, to build you up in an inappropriate way. I say this to honor you and, how, and to further communicate how excited I am for this church and what God's doing over here on Welsh Road um, because of the grace of God that's upon this man's, man's life. And you are, you are privileged. I'm sure you know that. I'm sure you know that. And I would just encourage you, express your gratitude when you see evidences of grace, not only in your leaders, but in the lives of the other people around you that you do community and mission with. And when we see God's grace, let's point out God's grace all to the praise of his glorious grace. So it is a joy to know you, brother. And I feel like my life is, is better by the grace of God, because I'm getting to know you and growing in partnership with you. So I just want to say that and praise the Lord for that. Amen. 
if I could tell you one thing, why would you even make it that? Why would you even make it that? Like one thing. You have a hard time saying one thing when you're up here. <laughs> one thing. I have a question. Here's the question. And because of the nature of this message, we, we, just like you guys, we love to consecutively, expositionally preach through books of the Bible. And right now we're going through the Gospel of Mark, Grace Church over on the other side of the boulevard. And we, we love to teach that way. But with this particular kind of message, um, I, I feel like God would have me, the Spirit of God would have me give us a, a broad sweeping exhortation from the Gospels. And that I think we're captured in those two texts that Ajay read for us a few moments ago. And based on those two texts, here's the question I want to ask you. Here's the question I want to ask Seven Mile Church. Individually, corporately, how would you answer this question? Are you a follower of Jesus whose life is marked by what disciples do because of what Jesus has done. Is Seven Mile Church a church that is marked, ever increasingly marked, by what disciples do because of what Jesus has done? And as we seek to answer that question personally and corporately through the evaluation of the word of God, let's ask God's help. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is amazing. We thank you for him. We thank you for his life. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you that he ascended and right now ever lives above to make intercession for us. And so as we go through evaluation, as we respond to the exhortations of your scriptures, we do so not alone. We do so with one who ever lives above to make intercession for us. We do so with one whose righteousness pleads for us, whose blood cleanses us. So, Lord, help us not to be afraid of evaluation. Help us not to be afraid of conviction. Help us not to be afraid of exhortation. Because our acceptance with you is not based upon how we measure up. Our acceptance with you is based upon your son and what he's done for us. However, you would have us live as your people in a certain way because of what he's done for us. And so Holy Spirit, come now. Help us. Help us to look into the mirror of your word. And may we be changed. May we be changed individually and may may this church be changed corporately as your spirit does a mighty work through your mighty word. And we'll give you the praise for how you meet with us in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To talk about discipleship only in terms of what Jesus has done for us without us also talking about what we must do with and for Jesus would be a tragic mistake. So I want to make some noise about this today. I want to make some noise about what the scriptures say disciples do because of what Jesus has done. And I just want to prepare you, as maybe you even heard coming through in my prayer, this can get a little uncomfortable. 
It can get a little uncomfortable because whenever we talk about measuring what we do, we, we can almost brace ourselves for conviction. How many of you came to the church and said, I can't wait to be convicted. I want to repent. You don't, you know. We know we need to. We know we, we should want to. But how many of us, we, how many of us long for that? So when we evaluate, when we ask the Holy Spirit to discern what's going on inside and working its way outside, that can be an uncomfortable process. So it can be an uncomfortable subject that we're going to talk about today because of that, but it can also be an uncomfortable subject today because whenever we talk about being gospel-centered, we often talk primarily and almost exclusively about what Jesus has done for us. And so it may even sound a little weird for us who, who championed the gospel, the finished work of Jesus, to talk about the implications of what that gospel moves us out to do. But we're going to do it because God's word says we should. So let me ask you again, is your life and is this church marked by what disciples do because of what Jesus has done? Now, before we make some noise about that, before we make some noise about what disciples do be, because of what Jesus has done, we should, we, should, we should believe this, we should be set on this. We always want to make the greatest noise about what Jesus has done. We want to make the greatest noise. We want, to, we want to shout the loudest. We want to be the most expressive and excited about what Jesus Christ has uniquely done for us. So before we even let out the faintest whisper about what we must do, we need to rejoice and shout aloud from the mountaintop what Jesus has done for us. Has not Jesus been good to us? That could possibly be the understatement of the sermon. Jesus has been good to us. Who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners like you and me is what we affectionately refer to as the gospel, the good news. The good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done. And so we gather together today, and like you do every Sunday, like we do every Sunday, we want to make a lot of noise about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That God the Father sent God the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The good news that Jesus lived the life you could not live so that you might be accepted by God. That Jesus Christ died the death you deserve to die. That you might be forgiven all your sins and delivered from all God's wrath. The good news that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That we might have life in God and with God forever. The good news that Jesus Christ ascended from earth to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And ever lives above 24-7 to help you out. The good news is that this very same Jesus will return, judge the living and the dead, glorify his bride, the church, and make all things new. That is good news. That is what Jesus Christ has done. And forever and ever and ever, we will rejoice in that good news. You will rejoice in that good news. I will rejoice in that good news. We will be with all the people of God from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, rejoicing forever, saying, Jesus, you're worthy for all that. That's what Jesus has done. We celebrate that gospel. We express our gratitude for that gospel. We thank the Father for the gospel. We thank Jesus for being the gospel. We thank the Holy Spirit for enlivening our dead hearts and giving us eyes to see that gospel. You are who you are. I am who I am because of that good news. So before we even 
let out the famous whisper about what we're called to do as disciples. May it never get old for us to shout out loud and to make much of what God has done for us through Jesus. Can we say amen? Amen. Amen. God has been good to us through Jesus. The promises that flow from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done are held out freely to all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know if you've just walked off the street of Northeast Philadelphia and entered into this religious gathering for the first time. And, and this, is, this good news is new news to you. Let me tell you something. This good news is for you. If you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus, forgiveness will be yours. Deliverance from judgment will be yours. Acceptance with God will be yours, not based upon what you do, but based upon what Jesus Christ has already effectively and finally done through his life, death, and resurrection. That good news can be your good news today. That being said, we would be tragically mistaken if we think that Being a disciple of Jesus is just saying we believe that good news. We would be way off if we think that being a disciple is nothing more and nothing less than just saying, yeah, I believe that. I'm glad for that. What Jesus has done is not just something for us to believe. It's something that radically changes the way we behave. And there's often a gap between what we profess and how we live. What Jesus has done for us, uniquely through his life, death, and resurrection, is meant to radically turn our hearts in a completely different direction. They were inward. Now they're upward and outward. And that's why he's, that's why he has rescued you. That's why he is, that's why he's rescued me. Our lives were not to be, were meant to be inward. Our lives were created to be upward and outward. Say it another way. What Jesus Christ has done, what Jesus Christ has done uniquely through his life, death, and resurrection is part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple. One who follows after Jesus and lives like Jesus. The Christian life is more than just believing something or being something because of Jesus. It's also doing something with and for Jesus. And so so don't miss this. I'm sure Ajay and your leaders have labored long and hard for this. What you do never replaces what Jesus has done. What you do never adds to what Jesus has done. Right now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God, does not, God will not love you any more than he loves you right now. His acceptance of you is not based upon what you do. His acceptance of you is based completely on what Jesus Christ has already done. Do not forget that. Don't miss that. In the midst of what the Bible talks about, we must do because we are followers of Jesus. So, what Jesus does compels us and 
empowers us to do something for our, with our lives for the glory of God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. What do disciples do because of what Jesus has done? In the Gospels, Jesus gives us bookends of what we do because of what Jesus has done. Bookends, you remember what those are? Bookends, you know, things that keep books together. I know you're used to reading on your computer and your, and your iPad and your iPhone now. Books, they're wonderful. Don't, don't get rid of your books. I get phone calls from friends and seminary and, and ministry saying, hey, you want to buy my books? Why do you want to sell your books? Well, I'm going to get them all digitally on my computer. I'm like, no, don't do that. Because you know what? Before you leave today, there'll be a new upgrade for your iPad, okay? Before you leave today, there'll be a new update for your Kindle, okay? Those things just keep reproducing themselves, and they, they keep getting newer, and you need to get bigger and better. And so what are you going to, 30 years from now, bequeath your iPad to your great-grandchildren? I don't think so. Keep your books. That's what's known as an Ian aside, okay? <laughs> keep your books. Bookends, right? Bookends, they keep your books together. And I think Jesus has given us in the Gospels bookends that kind of keep our discipleship together. Bookends that help us realize hey, there's a lot that goes on in between, but these two broad categories make discipleship make sense. They give clarity and direction to what disciples do because of what Jesus Christ has done. How many of you are familiar with an old cartoon skit called Pinky and the Brain? Okay. Very, very interesting. They're both laboratory rats. One is a genius. The other's insane. Okay. And the insane one, Pinky, would w- wake up each night and say to Brain, what are we going to do tonight, Brain? And Brain would look at Pinky and go, the same thing we do every night, Pinky. Plan to take over the world. And so Pinky had an issue. He, he, every day he woke up, he's like, what am I here for? What am I supposed to do? What are we going to do? We don't have to live like Pinky for many reasons. Don't see any laboratory rats out there. For many reasons, we don't have to live like Pinky. But you don't have to live each day wondering, what am I here for? What am I going to do? What's life all about? The bookends of discipleship. Give clarity and direction to every day of our discipleship journey with Jesus and one another. What are they? The great commandment. And the Great Commission. The Great Commandment and the Great Commission. The bookends of what disciples do because of what Jesus has done are what give us clear direction and purpose for every single day of our lives. Whether you've been following Jesus for 20 minutes, 20 weeks, or 20 years. Whether you are young or old, male or female, red and yellow, black and white, you are precious in his sight wherever you're at. Wherever you live, whatever you do, whether you stay at home or go to work, hang out in the neighborhood, do life, wherever you are, the bookends of Christian discipleship give clarity and direction to everything God expects you to do because of what Jesus has done. In them, Jesus tells us what he wants us to be doing in this one short vapor-like life we have. What are they? The great commandment and the great commission. Love God, love others, Make disciples. Love God. Worship. Love others. Community. Make disciples. Mission. And guess what? That does not sound new to you. Because I've heard him say it. I heard your pastor in the vision message in January say this. I don't know where we're going to be 20 years from now. I don't know what it's going to look like. But here's what I know we're going to be about. We're going to be about the gospel. We're going to be about community. And we're going to be about mission. 
guess what? The one thing I have to say here to you is something you've already heard. Should I close in prayer? Disciples, love God, love others, make disciples, and then we go home and we're Jesus. Let's look at these bookends. First, the great commandment. Disciples love God and others. Look at the text in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. This will not be an extensive treatment of the text, but I would like to read it again. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That is the word of the Lord. Should we thank him? Thank you, Lord. In other words, these two commands summarize every command that God has ever given. That's why it's the great commandment. It's great in what it encompasses. The great commandment encompasses every single one of God's expectations for his people up to this point in redemptive history. This is what disciples do because of what Jesus Christ has done. We love God and we love others. The great commandment is love to objects, God and others, upward, outward. Let's talk about love for God. We must love God. This is what disciples do because of what Jesus has done. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Loving God starts with an affectionate attitude toward God. Notice here that Jesus calls his disciples to be all in for God. All in. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. Jesus says disciples are affectionately committed to their God with everything they have. In other words, loving God is not a part-time gig. It is a full-time occupation. It's an attitude that says I'm all in for God. And all that I have is offered up to him through a life of worship. Alan Hirsch, theologian and missiologist, defines worship this way. I find this greatly helpful. Worship is offering up my whole world back to God. Sure, we've been worshiping here this morning. We've been, we've been participating in acts of worship. But worship is, is bigger than that because God is bigger than that. Life is bigger than that. Worship is offering up my whole life back to God. All that I am, all that I have, offered up to him. My life, my abilities, my vocation, my relationships, my family, my children, my money, my possessions, my house, my car, everything that makes up my world. Guess what? It's all for him. It's all for him. It's all for him. See, loving God in this context, this, this life of worship is an all-encompassing commitment to say, God, all that I am, all that I have comes from you, therefore I gladly offer it back to you. That's life worship. 
Not just Sundays, all of my days. Not just part of my life, all of my life. Offered up to God because God offered it all down for me. It's like the old hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. What happens when we look at the cross? I think we make the same observation the hymn writer made. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my what? My all. When I look at what God has given for a sinner like me, to reconcile me to God, to forgive all my sins, to deliver me from judgment, to give me the hope of eternal life. When I look at all that he gave for me through his son Jesus, how, how can I hold anything back? How can I say, God, I'll give you Sundays? How can you say, God, I'll give you Sunday? Love so amazing, so divine, demands your life. Your soul, your all. God, I gladly give everything that makes up my world back to you. It's, it's yours. My life is for you. I am here for you. Take me and everything that makes up my world. And here, I love you. That's worship. Loving God with everything you got. Is that how you feel about God? Is that how you feel about life? I think there's a, there's a very, very important distinction we need to make about life that helps us view life this way. I think we're all tempted to view life as owners instead of stewards. We think the stuff that makes up our world is really ours, when in reality, someday it'll be sold in a garage sale or tossed off at a dump, right? You brought nothing into this world, you'll take Nothing out of this world. And when we act like owners, when we act like the stuff that makes up my world belongs to us, and it makes us us, here's what we do. We protect it, we guard it, we cherish it. We don't let anything mess with it. Why? Because if you mess with the stuff that's in my world, you mess with me, you mess with me, I'm, I'm without identity. And so what we do is the stuff that, we, that makes up our world, the stuff that makes up our life, when we, when we view it through the lens of ownership, what we end up doing is we turn the stuff that makes up our world, we turn those things into God. Ownership always leads to idol worship. When we view the stuff in my world as through the lens of stewardship, I realize that everything I have and everything that I am has come from the hand of a gracious, loving God who made me and sent his son to save me. Therefore, I really don't own anything. I'm just, I'm just managing it. Therefore, I want to use it for the one who's given it to me. You see, if we're going to live a life of love for God, if we're going to live a life of worship, if we're going to do what disciples do because of what Jesus has done, we've got to stop acting like owners and start acting like stewards. And we can just freely, generously give of our world for the great glory and purposes of God. This is what disciples do because of what Jesus has done. It's, it's, it's like marriage. It's like marriage. Like there are a thousand things I do in the course of a day because I'm all in with Rachel. She can't be here today. My youngest son, Silas, is sick. I didn't even introduce them. Uh, the two kids are here with me. They're my kids. Uh, Payson and Piper. Payson is eight. Piper is seven. 
have another younger guy, little redhead, Silas. He's five, but he's got a horrible sinus infection. He's on the nebulizer and all that good stuff. And so Rachel is caring for him. But I'm all in for Rachel. And because I'm all in for Rachel, there are just thousands of things that go on in the course of the day, really. That's how many like action things happen, thoughts and actions and desires and stuff that happens all day long. And, and there are things that I do because I'm all in for her. The things that I don't do because I'm all in for her. I don't scare her in the middle of the night anymore because I'm all in for her. Okay? I don't ask her to make meatloaf anymore because it was a comfort food when I was a kid. She hates it. I'm all in for her, so no meatloaf in my house, okay? There are places that I'll go and won't go because I'm all in for her. The things that I love that she loves because I'm all in for her. The things that I hate that I used to not hate but I hate now because I'm all in for her. When you're all in for someone, it just has a sweeping all-encompassing effect on what you desire, what you say, what you do, what you don't say, what you don't do. And when you do something you shouldn't do, you say, I'm sorry, because you're all in. I think it's a picture of what we're being called here. We're being called to be all in for God. I wake up each day, I come before him and say, God, I'm all in. My life is for you. Your love for me compels my love for you. Here's my world. Here's my world. My life, my time, my talents, my treasures, my relationships, all of it. It's for you because you've made me to love you because of your great love for me. Disciples love God. This is life worship. Now, what naturally flows from loving God is loving others. Jesus says, this is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I take this as Jesus saying that the great, great commandment has one command, love, and that love has two parts or two objects, God and others. First, love God. Second, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And I think the relationship is that one leads to the other, and one is expressed like the other. When we love God like we should, we'll love others like we should. And we express that love for others similarly to the way we express our love for God. Or we can say it another way. Our vertical love fuels our horizontal love. And there's a thousand applications for that. How that works out in marriage, how that works out in parenting, how that works out in the workplace, how that works out. I mean, just, that could just go on and on, but this is just one thing I'm supposed to say. Our vertical love fuels our hearts. I've already blew that, right? I've already said more than one thing. So here we see the second part of the great commandment is that we love others. Here's community, a shared life. There's so much that could be said here. But this love for others, this, this sense of sharing my life with others, this, this generosity that, towards others that reflects the generosity of God, this self-giving it all starts with an affectionate attitude toward the people that make up our world. It's an attitude that says, I take all that I have and I offer it up to God and then I gladly share it with the people God has providentially placed in my path. Again, when we view life through the lens of ownership, we withhold our world from others. We stockpile. We hoard 
We accumulate. We play the role of the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 right? It's my stuff. When we view life through the lens of ownership, it's accumulation, it's preservation, it's stockpiling. But when we view life through the lens of stewardship, we realize that, ev- we realize that everything in my world is from God. And God has been so generous to me. How can I not help but be generous with others? So I share my world. Loving God leads to loving others. And loving others is sharing my world with others. Sharing my world with my family. Sharing my world with my neighbors. Sharing my world with my coworkers. Sharing my world with the church. Whatever makes up my world, family, money, possessions, whatever, if it makes up my world, it's not just there for me, it's there for others. And so the the great commandment is calling us not only to offer up our whole world to God, uh, the the great commandment is also compelling us to say, hey, listen, here's my whole world. I not only offer up to God, but I hold on to it loosely while I'm down here because I'm going to be willing to to kind of to leverage it towards other people, whether it's just to enjoy life with them or to really help out real needs. I mean, read the book of Acts. This is how the this is how the first disciples lived. This wasn't communism. This was the church. They didn't count anything as belonging to themselves. They, they, it, was, it was open access. Whoever needed it, they could have it. Is that how you view your world? Is that how you view the things that make up your world? That God's not just given you those things for you. God's given you those things to share with others. Your house is not your house. It's God's house. And he gave it to you to share with others. Your paycheck is not your paycheck. I can say that. I'm not your pastor. We struggle with that kind of stuff. But that's why we bring guest speakers. And he says, hey, just say one thing. Talk about money, okay? Just kidding. <laughs> you can do damage control on that one later. He really didn't. No, it's, it's not my stuff. It's God's stuff. My kids, they're really your kids, God. So if you want to send them to some really hard place to blaze a trail for the gospel, go ahead, Lord. They're yours. We don't hold on to the things that make up our world. We, we hold them loosely. We need them. They're in our lives because we need them. But we don't just need them for us. God's given to them these things to us for others. Whether it's just to enjoy life together or to leverage them towards difficulties and hardships. It's there for others. Isn't it true that when we're going through difficult times and when tragedy strikes a family, it's like everybody kind of comes to the, rises to the occasion and shares, right? It's like when someone passes away visits, money, and lasagna come out of the woodwork. Why? Because there's there's almost this latent reflex in us that when someone needs something, if I have it, I'm going to give it, right? And that really comes out when the difficulty arises. When we see... When we see sickness, when we see death, when we see hardship, when we see injustice, our hearts almost say, I got to do something about that. I believe that's like a latent desire that should always be active in the people of God. We should always be willing to say, hey, listen, if I have it, here. If you can benefit from it, I'm sharing it. If I have it, I don't want to just enjoy it by myself. I want you to enjoy it with me. That's what disciples do. Because of what Jesus has done. He is our example, isn't he? He's the one who, who had everything and remains to have everything. But he left heaven and came to earth to give of himself for us. He was a sharer. Jesus was generous. 
So we look to him and we look to his example and we've received from, the, from, from, from his, from his self-giving and now we're called as his disciples to do likewise. But this is hard. This is hard because we're bent towards hoarding and stockpiling and keeping and accumulating and I had this math teacher. I went to high school down in Center City Parkway and um, I had this this math teacher who had this coffee mug on his desk and it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's, that's the American dream. Let me get as much as I can for me. Now, if you are in a position where God has allowed you to get a lot, praise God, but share it. Share it. It's not just for you. It's for others. And as, and as much as you're able, do good, especially to those of the household of faith. But if we're going to live like this, if we're going to love our neighbor as ourself, <clears throat> we're going to need to resist the temptation to protect our stuff. We're going to resist the temptation to stockpile and hoard our stuff. And let me just confess to you. We are, we are so Selfish. I am so selfish. I am a grossly selfish man. Let me give you an example. Last Saturday, we're coming home from our oldest son's indoor soccer game. And here's what you should do when you come home from an indoor soccer game. You stop at Dunkin' Donuts, okay? And so here we are, van full family, good Dunkin' Donuts. There's five of us, okay? Five people, <clears throat> Half a dozen donuts has how many donuts? How many? Okay, good. You guys, you guys are sharp. Okay, five people in my family, six, six donuts and a half dozen donuts. I have one son who has dietary regulations where he can't have donuts. So now that makes six donuts, four people. And so I'm going into Dunkin' Donuts. The family's in the car, and here's what's going on in my heart. Ah, four people, six donuts. That's three for me. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not thinking about, I'm not thinking about, there are these, there are these options now for me to, to share and love. What other one with Payson want? What other one with Piper want? No, what do I want? And so I get the donuts and I get in the car and we're driving home and we all eat our God-appointed donut, right? And so... We pull up to the house, and there's still two in that box, and I'm still thinking about enjoying those donuts. And my wife looks over to me, and she goes, hey, Ian, over our next-door neighbor, his little girl was out in the yard, and she said, why don't you go see if Jade wants one of those donuts? <laughs> my donuts. <laughs> it was like one of those, what you talking about, Willis moments, you know? And so, like I, I like I resisted, and then I'm sitting here, and the Holy Spirit's like, "You idiot! They're donuts. <laughs> They're donuts." And I'm like, "You're right." So I'm going to give her one. So I get out of the car. I'm walking towards her with the two donuts in the box, and I begin to jockey around in my heart. Well, I want her to take that one and not that one because I want the. Other. It just gets worse before it gets better. And so I give her one of the donuts. I got closer to her. I also noticed that her father was sitting on the front stoop. And I noticed very quickly that he was distraught. 
He was actually crying. And if you knew this guy, union worker, steam fitter, tough guy, rough around the edges, he didn't want me to see that he was crying. And his life is a mess. His marriage is a mess. I would have never known. I would have never been in the spot to provide care and prayer and just to, hey, if you need me, I'll be there. If I hadn't shared a stupid donut with my neighbor's daughter that I was postured in my heart not to. I think it's a good example of how selfish we are. But also a good example of how when we resist living a shared life, it keeps us out of situations where we can meet even bigger needs. This is what disciples do. Because of what Jesus has done, we, we hold our stuff loosely because we want to be postured to be generous with our world because God has been so generous to us. Is that the way you view your world? The things that make up your world, do you believe that they're not just there for you, but they're there for others? Would God help us collectively, individually to repent of our selfishness, of our, of our mass accumulation syndrome, and take our world and share it with our neighbors. Would this church, would this church be a generous church to this neighborhood? Would Northeast Philadelphia see the generosity of God through the generosity of Seven Mile Road Church as you go out of your way to share your world with this part of Northeast Philadelphia? Would God compel you and give you vision and give you direction? How can you share your world? Look, look the building you're in. Isn't God generous? God has been so generous to you, Seven Mile Road Church. God has been so generous to you. He's given you this, not just for you, but that you would share your world in some tangible way. May the Holy Spirit lead you to know how you can share your world with this neighborhood and just wow them with the generosity of God because we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This is what disciples do because of what Jesus has done. Finally, the Great Commission. The first bookend is the Great Commandment. Love God, love others, mission, community. Second and finally, the Great Commission. Disciples make disciples. This is mission. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Say, Ian, you're just getting to your second point right now. I only plan to touch on this for just a little bit. Although Jay said, as long as I want. But when pastors say that, they never really mean that. Would you let him do that? (laughs) What Jesus says here is so grand. What Jesus says here is is like a, if if the New Testament were a mountain range, this 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 would be one of the higher points in the mountain range. This is huge. This is, this, is what, this is what disciples do because Jesus has done on the other side of the great commandment until Jesus Christ comes back. 
This is huge. And it can be summarized in one sentence. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. Jesus says, go. Recruit people to follow me. And if they follow me, teach them to publicly identify with me. And once they publicly identify with me, tell them everything I told you. Disciples make disciples. Do what I've been doing with you for the last three and a half years, Jesus is saying to the twelve and to all who were gathered there with them. I believe this is a larger group. But here's the mission. Make disciples. If you're a disciple, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your mission. You are called and commissioned by Jesus to recruit other people to follow Jesus. Disciples make disciples. Let me ask you this question. How did you become a follower of Jesus? How did you become a follower of Jesus? You say, well, God called me. Good theology. You say, he chose me before the foundation of the world. Absolutely. He, he regenerated my dead heart and made me alive to respond to the gospel of repentance and faith. Right on. But what was the means that God used to make his calling in your life actualized? Somebody told you about Jesus. There are unique situations where people have sat down with their Bibles. No one's ever told them a word. They sit down, they read their Bible, the Holy Spirit awakens them. They turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. I'm not sure if you're one of those. If you're one of those, come tell me your story afterwards. I love those stories. But here's the norm. Somebody told you about Jesus. And maybe someone told you again and again and again until God did something. He turned the switch on. And you said, yeah, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a greater savior. Someone told you that. Now, to use my family as an example, maybe that happened for you on Planet Christian. My wife grew up on Planet Christian, okay? She doesn't remember a day where she wasn't in church. She had someone telling her about Jesus since the day she remembers anything, right? And so maybe you're like my wife. You grew up on Planet Christian, and you maybe had a father, and he'll be beside your bed each and every night praying with you. Why? Because he believed that disciples make disciples. Or maybe you're like me. Maybe you come from Planet Pagan, okay? You didn't grow up hearing about Jesus. I didn't grow up hearing about Jesus. But, then, but God had a providential encounter for me one evening as a teenager in, in Junietta Park in between Kensington and Frankfurt. God had a, a divine appointment where a man who was in his mid, in, probably in his mid-40s, wanted to tell me something that I didn't want to hear about. He told me about my sin. He told me about the Savior. It was the last thing in the world I wanted to hear, but God wanted me to hear it, so I heard it. And then I started going out to a youth group there at the church. I heard the gospel again and again and again. And after about a year of hearing the gospel over and over again, just on Friday nights in the youth group, I went to a winter retreat, retreat with, the, with the youth group, and God opened my heart to the gospel. And he saved me. And he's changing me. And he receives me. How did that all happen? Well, God's grace, right? But God's grace through a channel God uses people to bring people to Jesus. I'm sure you long for Christians in this community to find a church like yours. I'm sure there, there, are, there are stranded Christians who aren't connected and committed to a gospel-centered local church, and you hope they find this place. I hope they find this place. 
But do you want this? Do you want the people of this neighborhood who are dead in their sins to be made alive by the gospel? Do you want people who right now are are condemned to be freely forgiven and delivered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you want that? Do, Do you want that? Do you want to see added to the church daily those who are being saved? Do you want that? You want to see lives turned around, right? I was in the prayer meeting with the, with the guys and the ladies before the service, and I heard someone pray, Lord, would you take broken people and fix them by the power of your gospel? I, I heard prayers for redemption and restoration. Listen, you want that, don't you? God's got to do it. But my friends, listen, God does that through means. He's determined the end, and he's determined the means, and he uses his people to bring other people to Jesus. Go and make disciples. You live where you live. You work where you work. You shop where you shop. You drink coffee where you drink coffee. Why? Because God has appointed people for your life. He wants them to see the gospel at work through your life, and he wants them to hear the gospel from your mouth. Disciples make disciples. Disciples. Right here in Northeast Philly, uh, Welsh in the Boulevard, a week ago from Friday, I'm not sure if you heard the news of a 44-year-old woman who was tragically killed and struck by a car there at Welsh in the Boulevard. When I heard that news the day it happened, my heart broke. I prayed for that woman's family. I prayed for the man who struck her with his vehicle. My wife lost her mother in a tragic car accident, and knowing what, what the man went through that was responsible for hitting my mother-in-law. I prayed for that man. But then this thought came to my heart, and I think this is an appropriate reflex, and this is God's spirit. I said, Lord, I don't want anyone in Northeast Philadelphia to die without hearing about Jesus. I don't want anyone in Northeast Philadelphia to die without hearing the good news that God is merciful to sinners through Jesus Christ. And guess what, church? We are called to tell them. Northeast Philadelphia is huge. It's one of the largest sections of our huge city. There are over 600,000 people that make up Northeast Philadelphia. We're just trying to reach a small slice of them over at Welsh, on the other side of Welsh and the Boulevard. But you have stewardship here. Tell them about Jesus. This is what disciples do because of what Jesus has done. We we share the gospel and we leave the results to God. You can't save anyone. You can't convince anyone to become a follower of Jesus. But we have this thing called seed and we kind of scatter it and maybe someone else will water it or maybe you'll do some watering too and then God is able to do something amazing. He can bring it to life. There's chairs to be filled in this place. Let them be filled with new followers of Jesus. Pretty soon you're going to have two gatherings. Soon you're going to have to do that, you know. But, but let, those, let those seats be filled with people who are just starting to follow Jesus. Maybe you can do this in application to this. Thank God for who told you about Jesus. Thank God for the people that God used to progressively over and over again tell you that you were a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. Thank God for the ones who showed you the ropes of following Jesus. Thank him for those people. He used those people in your life and probably continues to use those people in your life. I get to serve on the pastoral team with the man who discipled me. That's really cool. 
I get to tell my old youth pastor what to do. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't fly like that. But God wants to use you in very similar ways that God used the people that told you about Jesus. This is what disciples do because of what Jesus has done. So are you putting yourself out there to tell people about Jesus, to live on mission in your home, with your neighbors, at your work, at the ball field, at the gym, at the coffee shop, in the grocery store, wherever you go, God has you there on purpose because disciples make disciples. So here's the, here's the one thing. The bookends of Christian discipleship. It's not just about what Jesus has done, although we want to be loudest about that. What Jesus has done compels us to do something for the glory of God. And that something looks like living our lives in submission to the great commandment and the great commission. As God has commanded us, may he give us his power to obey. And may we repent where we see disobedience and believe afresh that the risen Christ will enable us by the Holy Spirit to do what he's called us to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And as we seek to answer the question, are our lives marked by what disciples do because of what Jesus has done? We come to you humbly, Lord, because we know the answer is not all the time. Even our want-to doesn't catch up with our doing. We like the idea of living a life of worship. We like the idea of loving our neighbors. We like the idea of living on mission. But Lord, oh, oh Lord, oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. As Solomon said, the soul of the sluggard desires but has nothing, but is the soul of the diligent that we made fat. We are lazy men and women. We confess our laziness to you, Lord. We confess our laziness to you and thank you that through the blood of Jesus there's forgiveness and we repent. We want to love you, love others, and make disciples. God, help us to do this to the day we die and then we look forward to being with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.